this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 26, our discussion of emerging insights about the best practices for using NITs in clinical trials. This conversation wraps up the broader discussion by addressing a range of unanswered questions. In the end, the group incorporates the issue of quality of life into this trial process. As Quentin notes, the primary focus of the exercise might be to streamline and simplify clinical trial process, but over time, the same approach might allow us to broaden the questions we answer to those of greatest relevance to the patient, more about feel and function, less simply about survival. This conversation, based on high-profile talks Quentin Anstey gave at two recent events, represents leading-edge thinking about the use of NITs in clinical trials. All of us found the entire discussion challenging and exhilarating, and I hope you do too. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Quentin, does that presuppose that there is one ground truth? I mean, one of the conversations we have around here from time to time, look, I go back to cancer, which is kind of the first thing I ever learned about. And we used to think there was such a thing as cancer. And then we learned over time there wasn't. The different organs had different cancers. And then one organ had multiple cancers. Does that presuppose that there's a common ground truth? Or can we get to that kind of answer, even if, in fact, what we're calling Nash's five or six different diseases is evidenced by the fact that we've got different modes of action that work in different people and that we think combination therapy will be a solution? Quentin Anstey. So remember, right now, we don't have of good biomarkers for NASH. We've got biomarkers for fibrosing steatohepatitis, where due to the collinearity of fibrosis and NASH, you buy one, get one free. So the most tractable area to think about this, first of all, as a proof of principle, would probably be in fibrosis change. So fibrosis, in, in, in histological talk, uh, a one-stage improvement in fibrosis. So, But looking at fibrosis would be the area where I think this could be tested out first and looked at in more detail. Jörn Schattenberg. And I wouldn't probably call it five or seven different diseases, Roger. I mean, there's clearly a different dynamic in different patients and maybe different drivers. But we all agree this is inflammation leading to the activation of stellate cells, positioning fibrosis, which in the end leads to liver endpoints and mortality. Um, so, And here, I think that the fibrosis readout is just the most robust one. And that's what Quentin also mentioned. Looking at that disease stage, we're, we're in the more robustness. I sometimes use the frame, the, the elephant and the mouse, uh, the inflammation is the mouse moving quick in and out uh, and changing rapidly. And the elephant is the slow guy in the room sitting there and building up slowly. Thanks, Ron. I That was probably imprecise of me to put exactly that way. I, I, I take your point exactly. Go ahead, Stephen. Stephen Harrison. See, Jorn, you can tell you have little kids because you tell these stories and, you know, Ways that are interesting and people want to listen. It's funny, Stephen. I'm back in the movie Philadelphia <laughs> from the 80s, and and Denzel Washington saying, "Explain to me like I'm a six year old." Right there, you go. We actually had a, I got to tell the story. We had a we had a meeting once, and I, we had a graphic recorder. Okay, she she draw she draw me a, a mouse and elephant on that, and I, I'm going to show that and we'll talk one day. And I, I, I carry that for, uh, along with me for some time. I thought it was a brilliant way to put it. It's great. Okay, anything else we want to cover off on this topic, or we started a little bit late, so we could we could go to a final question and wrap up if. Uh, we think we've covered everything we're going to want to do today. Louise Campbell. I was just going to ask then, if you theorize that you can get a stacking system, you can apply it to the placebo group as well. So if people were going to, you can predict what the placebo outcomes are going to be if they meet all of those factors. Would that be correct in my way? So that you could say by week X, if you've achieved these, that we think the placebo is going to be a 25% response. We can predict it now. And you can pick. Could you do that? All right. So I, I would keep the idea of predicting 
future response out of it. I, I think I would keep it as cross-sectional, but the point being that one could apply it to each arm of a study. And so if you were expecting, um, you know, looking at the number of individuals who responded on three separate biomarkers in one treatment arm, you would expect that if the drug was efficacious, there would be more in that arm than there were in placebo arm. So it might well be a way of actually salvaging failed drugs or histologically failed drugs by setting the bar much tighter. A great example of this, uh, and we, we actually looked at this and modeled it, was some of the semaglutide data, where, of course, you know, in the main paper, the histological endpoint for fibrosis was not reached. But when you stack histology, fibroscan, and ELF test and look at only those individuals who have met the predefined threshold for all three, you actually see a significant difference between placebo and the treatment arms. Now, the N gets very small in terms of the number of individuals who fulfill that, but it implies to me that you are actually moving the needle on fibrosis. But that's exactly where NAIL NIT can help, Quentin, because it's going to combine that data set with another data set with another data set, and your specific comment can be addressed across a broad swath of studies. Thanks for the pitching. Well, what are we waiting yeah. for? <laughs> what are we waiting for? Let's get on with this. That's your, that's your project, so one last I thought think. That, <laughs> well, we're well, we're, well uh, we're advancing, let's put it that way. One last thought I want to ventilate in this group quickly is, uh, Quentin, you talked about imaging and blood-based biomarkers. Now, we do have quality-of-life biomarkers that are typically explored in the studies, and we report on them separately. Would this be something we could link in here? I mean, if we report on those trials, we normally compare them with histology, but could we add this in a dimension that's worth and helps us, or any thoughts on that? So I think that's an interesting area. I think you'd need to consider, Jean, what you wanted to combine it with. So, for example, if you look at some of the work that Zubair has published, you would say that quality of life goes with fibrosis. If we look at some of the work that you and I published, we'd say, well, also it can go with steatohepatitis. hepatitis. So you'd need to think about what you stack it with, because clearly there, there's some disparity into what biomarkers you'd put them with. But I certainly wouldn't dismiss it. I think it's a really important facet of the disease state. And maybe if you want to take this to the, and I don't think we're ready for this yet, but because we don't have the biomarkers to go with it, but the ultra uh, holistic approach, then it feels functions and survives. It feels biomarkers and maybe outcomes, but outcomes take a long time. Let's, let's stick with the stuff we can measure in a test tube. It's an interesting question that's about three or four steps up the road from what you're talking about right now, but it goes with Jorn's question, whether in fact in different situations, the stack the quality of life is different for, say, fibrosis than it is for steatosis, or is different in one set of patients than another. Yeah, wouldn't that be interesting to know? And it speaks to the idea of the lived experience of the disease. It speaks to Louise's point about how can we personalize medicine to subsets of patients. What we're talking about here, what we spend most of the time talking about is how can we simplify and make more robust trial endpoints? But maybe we can apply this and answer much bigger questions that um, matter even more to the patients we, we're here to look after. That, that's how, Quentin, it's always been my belief that every time you improve the quality of the building block, you improve the quality of what you can build. So that makes sense. Before closing comments, last round up, any, any further questions? Louise, that was great. Thank you. Where would you like to be on, each of you, where would you like to be on this issue in 12 months that you think is A, realistic, and B, brings the maximum value? Brave one, go first. I'll tell you, I'll tell you where I'd like to be. If we focus on that 
stacking and the commonality one. I would have liked to have tried that in a number of studies. I would like to have looked at it in some of the studies, phase two studies, where we've had positive results. And I would like to look at it in some of the studies where we've had negative results and to see what came out, how it shook down. I think that would be the first thing to do. Stephen's point about can we use it to guide us in selecting what the biomarkers we put into our fixed biomarker basket are, I think that would be the next thing. So I'd like us to move in those two directions. And where I'd really like to be in 12 months, and this is a, a, a dream, is not using histological endpoints in our trials, but moving to non-invasive. Yeah, we'd all like to be there in 12 months. Sounds a tad aggressive, but good yes, for you. Just a smidge. <laughs> well, the only thing I'd Next. add to that, I think that's excellent. I definitely want to be there as well, is could we step back and define a length of improvement in a biomarker that correlates with sustained histopathology improvement? Because that's something we haven't looked at before. As Quentin started off, you know, just because you drop ALT in four weeks by 17 units per liter, that doesn't necessarily mean fibrosis got better. And I think if we, <clears throat> we went back and mined our retrospective data and looked at syst- you know, a drop in a biomarker that happened at, at 36 weeks versus 24 weeks versus 12 weeks versus not at all, and we looked to see what happened with histology amongst those four different cohorts of patients. I, I can't help but imagine that there is going to be a difference. And then what we have to do is just say, what's the right length of time for a biomarker to have change at a certain threshold? That would be incredibly helpful to the regulatory authorities, to the payer, to the physicians, and to the patients. At the end of the day, if we could if we could define what that length of improvement is that matches a threshold change. That that's what I would just add to Quentin's thoughts. And my look to the stars expands that by saying I'd like to see all these data sets come together, as uh, Stephen has uh, pointed out. Nayla and IT did that, lit, or aims to do it, is in the process. Litmus has done so in the past, and by integrating some of the clinical trial data and and really looking at this across multiple studies to and to just broaden the data set and and understand, you know, get some themes that we haven't been able to see in in, in a, in a let's say, 1,000 patients, but look at them more uh, broadly. I was going to take it in a slightly different way, uh, and in that we can get some commonality between the trials, because at the moment we're all pulling in different directions with different markers, different levels of those in a lot of the areas. So therefore, it's really, really difficult for the FDA or anybody to make a decision if we can't actually make a broad decision across and provide the same data set for the same trials each time. I think that strengthens our argument. So to be able to drill down and get a set, as Stephen alluded to, you can fix your prices, you can do everything and get that commonality. I think that that drives that data, that drives everything and I think it just the, the sooner we get all of that together the easier it is, is to prove the outcome and to get the FDA to see the same commonalities between everybody yeah I think that's I think all that's great um, this might be a really naive comment uh, or, or not entirely accurate but having now watched years of drugs get shot at the end of phase 2b or not get shot when they should have because there was a way to interpret them into phase 3 it would be great if any of this 
could improve our ability to determine either how we set up our 2Bs or what came out of 2B that was going to succeed in 3. Because I think, Stephen, when you talk about why money doesn't get invested, one of the reasons it doesn't get invested is because there's a relatively low faith right now on the part of investors that we know what's going to make a phase 3 trial go. And simply the ability to improve the confidence in that prediction. I mean, if you think back, I mean, Ella being the obvious one that comes to mind where or well, actually affect the intercept also, where phase 2B had challenges, but then we found, or the companies found a way to interpret it into phase three, and then that didn't make the challenges go away. It just enabled them to see one more set of cards. If we could increase the confidence that people had by how we amalgamate the phase 2B analyses, but what's going to work in phase three, I know we're not going to get there in a year, you don't have the data, but improving confidence in a phase three trial on the way in would be hugely helpful to investors. And as a result, I think the companies, and this feels like a path to get there. All right. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week with Louise and Rachel Zayas conducting interviews and summarizing key presentations from the Fifth Global Nash Congress while you and I ask questions. I promise to do my best to conserve my voice. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.